the best weekends that we have, I think as an industry, whether you're an independent or a big, is we have one that has diverse content. We have the big IP, the big temple, and then we fill them with you know, rom-coms or whatever it is, or a drama, those small films. And that's when we have the big, huge box office in aggregate, as opposed to that one-off you know, big hitter that's there for just two weeks by itself. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here with another episode of our podcast, we've got Rebecca Polly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, chief analyst of Box Office Pro, joining us to go over all of the reactions from the Super Bowl trailers that just premiered last weekend. We will also be going into detail on this weekend's wide release of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Let's uh, let's go right into it, guys, because we have a number of trailers that premiered during the Super Bowl. But before we get started, this episode of our podcast is brought to you by Jackrow and their Tapos system, a ticketing and point-of-sale solution that can automatically send your customers targeted emails based on their behavior and spending trends offers drag and drop custom reporting, and can even save you money on your card processing. To find out more, visit www.jacro, that's J-A-C-R-O.com. And a big thanks to our partners at Jacro for sponsoring us this week. Sean, you're probably the biggest football fan out of the three of us, which doesn't mean you're a massive football fan, but I'm assuming you watch this for the trailers. Which was the one Super Bowl trailer that jumped out at you the most? I actually don't like football. <laughs> oh, there we go. Ah, none of us like football. Is the, I, oh my I God. watch I watch the Super Bowl uh, for the first time in my life. So. Okay, oh, wow. wait a minute. Is Rebecca the only person that watched the Super Bowl here? Cocaine Bear trailer was one that we'd uh, seen already, but I will say, watching it with my boyfriend's, you know, parents and step parents, every time that came on, they were like, "What?" <laughs> so that one definitely stood out for them and for me as well, honestly. Cocaine Bear. Bear, It looks so fun. I can't wait to see it in a packed theater. Sean, this is a movie that we didn't really know what to make of when we first heard about it. There's a genre comparable here with something like Violent Night from Universal as well that probably didn't play out the way we wanted it to. I mean, what's your take on Cocaine Bear after it got a Super Bowl spot? Yeah, I think this reminds me a lot of Violent Night and a little bit of Massive Talent last year. I think there's a niche audience looking for this kind of comedy, but I kind of see it being a nice little you know bridge into March's bigger releases. I don't know how much widespread attention it's going to get. I've, I'm old enough to remember back when Snakes on a Plane came out and was massively right. hyped on the internet. Oh, man. And maybe this Total is that kind of a concept. movie. But all yeah. that matters is that people, there will be some people who love it, and God bless them. What else do we have here that, that jumped out at us? Okay, so Rebecca, Cocaine Bear, top of your list. How about on your end, Sean? A couple really stood out. I I think Indiana Jones was a big one for me, just seeing a little bit of new footage from that and really to me, getting some of those vibes from the original three films, it's starting to pop out the little more marketing we see, but also the flash. And then that's, that's just going to be a very interesting movie to talk about in a few months when it releases due to Ezra Miller. But I think the conversation can hopefully steer toward the quality of the movie. And this trailer they just released really goes a long way towards doing that because it, it looks like they might have a winner. I think there have been a lot of questions about this movie leading into last Sunday. A lot of people not too sure how to feel about it. But 
based on what I'm seeing online, the buzz, the chatter around this trailer, there's a lot of goodwill that wasn't here at this point last week for The Flash. Sean, is this budging up your forecast for The Flash? This looks like a maybe a solid movie they, they have here in the can. I think maybe in a, a little more time, let's kind of see how, you know, will this wave of momentum ride out over the next couple of months with the next trailer. I think the initial reaction, though, is is that this certainly helps any bullish forecasts. Maybe it raises a little bit. I think the online reactions have been really positive. I think Michael Keaton's return is going to be a huge, huge part of the appeal. They certainly uh, really kind of put all the dramatic mm, on, uh, on Michael Keaton coming yeah. back as Batman, <laughs> which I think was definitely smart. It's going to be an important part of the storyline, too, because even though we know all of this DC universe is resetting, that they can tie that back to what it looks like the storyline is going to really focus in on. And it's a big comic book storyline that actually resets a lot of the universe. Well, Daniel, what did you enjoy? Because I'm going to assume I'm gonna assume Creed 3 here. Would I be correct? Yeah, I missed the game, but I, I watched uh, all of these trailers on YouTube two hours before we started recording. Come on, Creed 3? That looks awesome. Jonathan Majors looks fantastic in that role as as the main antagonist. This has to be the breakout year for Jonathan Majors, I think, with with the titles that he's going to be coming into. Between that and Quantumania, yeah, it's a big year for him. It's a big quarter for him. I mean, it's going to be in three weeks, I think his star power is really going to be front and center. And we've seen what a good heel turn in a Marvel movie can mean for an actor. Michael B. Jordan, the director of Creed 3 and star of Creed 3, experienced that with probably the best villain in any of these Marvel movies with his role in the original Black Panther. Yeah, I, I'm hoping something similar can happen with Jonathan Majors, a fantastic actor that I'm, I'm really happy you know, seeing come up here. One trailer that I wasn't too excited by is, is actually, as you noted, Daniel, you know, most of these trailers are from films where we've already seen some measure of footage. One where that's not the case is a movie called Air. From the we know, it's a, a movie about the creation of the Air Jordans. And I'm just, well, granted, I'm not the target audience, but I don't really care about rich people inventing a shoe. No, but that's interesting because I can tell you, honestly, this was the second most appealing trailer to me. Sean, how did the air trailer land for you? I liked it. I mean, but I kind of, I see both, both sides of where you're coming from. I, you know, like you said, Rebecca, we really knew nothing about this movie's existence until just the last few weeks. But me personally, I signed me up for Matt Damon and Ben Affleck any day. I don't care if it's a bad movie. I'll, I'll watch it. <laughs> no, but I'm very curious to see this divergence in reactions to a trailer like this. I wonder if that's going to impact its cross-quadrant appeal when the movie's released later this year. Uh, an MGM release through this MGM-Amazon sort of collaboration, wide release. I think it's going to be the start of uh, a promising new era for Amazon and major circuits. But we've got other movies here uh, from major studios, movies that I'll be honest with you guys, I don't think I'm going to watch any of these, with the exception of Scream 6. Let's start with Scream 6. I'm definitely watching Scream 6. Yes, yes. I was pleasantly surprised I saw a trailer of this during the Super Bowl. Sean, that's coming up real soon. I know your recent long-range forecast featured this title. What range do you have on this sequel? I think something in the 25 to 35 range looks fair right now. It's it's a tough one to gauge, I think mainly to me, because when the last film came out last year, it had some of that nostalgia boost with the original cast returning, and now there's only one of them coming back for this. But you know, I also look at Jenna Ortega from Wednesday 
really you know really popular right now could help this film's profile with the younger audience so maybe it can get close to that opening of last year but you know i also wouldn't be surprised if maybe there are some diminishing returns which is all relative because these movies don't cost insane amounts of money so it looks like it'll it'll be a success either way even if it's on the low end Sean, what about like Transformers Rise of the Beasts here? Because I feel like this is the first time we saw anything more than like 10, 15 seconds of footage. And as we talked about in our podcast episode, kind of looking forward to what Paramount has going on 2023, you know, it's a huge property for them. It's a huge property internationally, but it's one that is kind of, we don't know much about it. What are you looking at here? Yeah. I don't know if the ads have really done much to skew any forecasts yet. I think the the positive thing is that Bumblebee a few years ago proved to a lot of people who maybe burned out on the Michael Bay movies that this franchise could go in a different direction. And it looks like this can kind of carry that torch. Rise of the Beast is based on one of the most popular aspects of the cartoon from back in the 90s called Beast Wars. But it's also opening in a really competitive corridor this summer. I mean, it's right after Across the Spider-Verse. It's right before The Flash. It's certainly a global play. It's not just going to be a domestic movie, but it'll be interesting to watch. And it's not headed by Nihilus Star, the star of it. That too, right. You know, from the theater background, started in the Heights, which didn't really land. So, yeah. But I wonder if we need an A-list star for these Transformers. At this point, have the Transformers become the A-list? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's it's a robot car. It's fine. We're good. But on the other end of this conversation, you look at the ensemble that something like Fast X has. It's impressive that they've been able to retain as many cast members as they have over 10 films. I left off on the first Fast and the Furious. For no real reason. But you guys have probably seen more. I mean, this is a franchise that has seen diminishing returns over recent years. I mean, I've seen most of them all out of order. I can say it that doesn't really matter what order you watch them in at all. This is such an interesting case study of a franchise. Vin Diesel explains it as a mythology that they've built out. And I, you know, to some to some credit, he's right. I mean, who would have thought this movie would have turned into eleven going on twelve, including the spin-off? When this a, all point started break years off. a point break yeah. off based on a magazine article. Like it's crazy. Right. Yeah. But there is, I, I think it's settled into something, especially after Paul Walker. I mean, Furious seven was the peak of the franchise. I think a lot of people kind of view that as the emotional ending and they've kept it going since then, but it continues to make money, especially internationally where it's still a, a major, major blockbuster. So, you know, kudos to universal for extending this as long as I have. What else we have here? We've got two more. Something called 65, which is about aliens, maybe? I don't know. Adam Driver's in it? What's he doing in there? It turns out that Adam Driver, oh, he was a spaceman, and then he travels and ends up on this crazy planet, and it turns out that it's Earth 65 million years ago, and there are dinosaurs. I don't know. I would have been more excited a few years ago before a series of disappointing dinosaur movies via the Jurassic Park franchise kind of... It gave me a little bit of dinosaur fatigue. I hate to say it, but uh, I hope it's good. I think it's an interesting premise. I mean, Sean, this has moved around the schedule a couple times. What expectations do we have on 65? This looks like calendar dump to me, unfortunately. Yeah, if this were opening, I think, in a different time, it probably would have a little more potential. But it's opening right as we get into a really busy March with a lot of male-driven action movies coming out. And then there's this one. Maybe it can stand out. Maybe it has good reception or whatnot. I kind of think back to how Plane did a little bit better than expected last month. And we've seen, you know, kind of a consistency with these male-driven action movies. 
but I think the ceiling is probably a little bit hurt by the fact that it will be facing Creed 3 and Shazam and... And talking about dinosaurs, are there dinosaurs in Dungeons and Dragons or is it just dragons? I think, I think it's, it's just, just dragons. In the movie, I it's think they've just, only shown I, I'm dragons way off. so far. But there may be dinosaurs. May I have no idea. Rebecca, have you seen this yet? No, I haven't. But it's from the duo which, who directed Game Night, which I was pleasantly surprised by. I was able to interview the pair of them for our upcoming Giants of Exhibition March-April issue. And they really hammered home, you know, we want this to be fun. It's going to be exciting. It's, it's going to evoke the spirit of playing D&D, which is just playing around with your friends, getting into weird situations, having a fun time which wasn't the case when I, the one and only time I tried to play D&D, but I've always kind of been interested in knowing a little bit about it. So I'm happy to have the opportunity to do that without having to actually do work. Sean, this is an IP with background on it. Does this have potential to break out? I think it does have some. It looks a little bit Jumanji light, I think maybe not quite as much family appeal, but it can have that appeal to to gamers and, and nerd culture, which speaks to the writer's history. Again, they were co-writers on Spider-Man homecoming a few years back so they clearly have you know an entryway into that audience combined with their comedic talents that they showed in game night i think this is it looks like a good combination of the two things to me yeah uh, another potential breakout hit from paramount coming in the spring and the last movie here i think has the potential of being one of the bigger movies of the year guardians of the galaxy volume three i watched the first one i had a great time with it I usually don't with Marvel movies, but this was a refreshing, fun, exciting, killer soundtrack movie. I missed the sequel, but the third one, the trailer seems to have a lot of that energy from the original. What were your reactions on it? For me, yeah, it had a lot of energy of the original. And uh, after seeing one and two, maybe the energy for me is, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel really fresh. It kind of felt like a like a retread for me. That said, I mean, who thought that the first Guardians of the Galaxy would be good? before it came out. So I, you know, I'm, I'm tentatively trustful of James Gunn here. It's not something I'm like super pumped to see, but I know I will see it. Yeah. I think for all intents and purposes, this is, even though we were talking about, which we'll talk about here in a minute, quantum mania being this big pivotal Marvel movie, guardians three is, is arguably their big film this year. I think in terms of what we can expect box office wise. So it's an important one. And I think the fact that they are pitching it as the end of a trilogy, it's these actors have, have already been out in the press talking about how this is the end of this team that will, you know, give it some kind of finale factor. I think when the movie releases, that's a good uh, lead in to one of the big segments we have lined up for this week. Sean, we've got the premiere of the first Marvel Cinematic Universe title of 2023 with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania. It's been a market dominated by Avatar The Way of Water, which legged out the way we all hoped it would. There's been a nice little diversity with some overperformers in the marketplace. But this is the first time, I think, in the year where we have a tentpole opening up. What can we expect from this movie this weekend? I think all signs are good so far. I mean, this is Ant-Man. Who would have thought seven years ago, the first film came out, opened to a little over 50 million. Even by Marvel standards, that was on the low end at the time, but it was a huge success, had great legs. The sequel built on that. I expect this one to build on that as well. I think Ant-Man, especially because of Paul Rudd and their profile have increased over the years because of how they became tied into the Avengers films. And now this movie, in addition, promises Jonathan Majors as Kang, who is another major Marvel villain from comic book lore. Not a lot of people outside comic book fans know him, but I think that's about to change. And 
you know, the Marvel brand is the Marvel brand at this point. If they pitch something as big, people will treat it as big. Early reception from critics, the social embargo broke last week, was overall mostly positive. I think there were some takeaways that maybe weren't as enthusiastic as we have seen from the biggest and best Marvel movies. But, you know, at this point, it's kind of a self-sustaining machine. It looks like this will probably end up doing a $100 million opening. I think Jonathan Majors as Kang showed up like in the season finale of the first season of Loki, which is like three or four years ago at this point. (laughs) So we finally get to figure out what's up with that guy. I think Loki, a lot of Marvel fans are kind of looking back to the end of that as being the setup for this whole multiverse saga that's taken more time to play out and build up to partly because of COVID. But this is, you know, the beginning of the delivery on that promise. And a $100 million opening weekend forecast here. For the moment, of course, these forecasts are updated right up to release. You can find the latest over at boxofficepro.com. And talking about forecasts here, Sean, will we have you, we're looking at a marketplace that I think is very different from where we were in Q1 of 2022. I think at this point last year, we had some expectations of where the year was going to end up 7.4, 7.5, probably not what we wanted. But at the same time, I look at how this Q1 is performing. I can't help but feel anything but positive. Can you run us down our quarterly forecasts here moving forward for our exhibitors in the audience, just so we can prepare how much of a concentration is going to play out in the coming year? Yeah, I think, well, we look at the first quarter and so far the lead over over last year is is fairly significant. And that's really a positive sign because we've mentioned it a few times. We're going into February and especially March that look really strong. That will probably continue to increase that lead a little bit. I don't know if we'll quite hit what is kind of perceived as a, you know, a traditional number of two billion in a single quarter. I don't think we're quite up to that point yet for this first first three months of this year. But looking at last year's roughly 1.3 to 1.4 billion during January through March, this year will easily exceed that. I think probably the biggest takeaway is what we really talked about leading into this year was the fact that we would see more releases. And it really helped that January titles like Megan, like A Man Called Otto, more or less overperformed or at least hit the high end of expectations with very few films missing. Knock at the Cabin is probably the only one recently that kind of missed in any significant way. Put an asterisk on Magic Mike. Uh, Warner Brothers distribution strategy on that was very hard to read for a long time. I think they probably left some money on the table, but that's a little bit of an aside. If you do a distribution strategy at 1,500 locations, focusing on major cities, and your number one earning location is the Santico site in San Antonio, you got it wrong. You left money on the table. What did it do? 8.2 million? Let's go with the numbers and cents. This could have easily broken 10 million with a couple more screens, you have to think, right? Yeah. I mean, in 1,500 locations, you know, that's roughly, it's less than half of what we would expect from a traditional release. So, you know, easily 10 million plus, I think if we, if they don't open this on Super Bowl weekend, maybe even if they do in a full, full spread, maybe something like 15 million was achievable. It was just a very odd, nebulous release. It makes no sense to me, to be completely honest, especially where we are right now after the promise of digital cinema, making it more affordable for studios to send more prints to more places. Yeah, I get it. It was supposed to go straight to HBO Max. Maybe it's not in the same quality as a movie made for theaters would have been. It's a release strategy that 
is good in the sense that it would have gone to streaming otherwise, but really went out of its way to negatively impact independent theaters in small towns. We have to call that out in this situation. I think that $15 million number that you cite, Sean, is realistic. And at the very least, if it goes out to 2,500 screens, which still isn't wide, but crosses 10, we would have all been a little bit happier. And coming to join us here in our feature segment is the president of the Independent Cinema Alliance, Rich Dottridge, who is going to be going over all of the latest information on the ICA and the relevance to the community right now in exhibition as independent cinemas continue to fight the good fight in making themselves viable for audiences all over the country. That's coming up after the break. Sean, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining. This week's feature segment is brought to you by full-service box office management provider Jackrow, which has customers singing its praises. Julie and Jeff Eisentrout of Eisentrout Theaters say, Jackrow has expertly responded to the growing digital needs of the industry and developed a product that is both logical and operator-friendly. Their support has always been timely, helpful, and reliable. Perhaps most important are the relationships we've developed. Jackrow's team has always been available when needed and treat us like we're part of the family. For more information, visit www www.jacro.com. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with Rich Dottrich, the president of the Independent Cinema Alliance. A lot of our colleagues are familiar with the Independent Cinema Alliance, the role it plays in the industry. But for our new listeners, what is the ICA and how is it different from other exhibition trade groups like the National Association of Theater Owners, for example? Yeah, it's a good question. And the Independent Cinema Alliance was born out of the desire to really help strengthen and grow independent cinemas around the country. So when you think of it as far as independent cinemas in the smaller context of the whole industry, NATO represents everyone, right? The Independent Cinema Alliance represents the independent cinemas throughout the country. And depending on what stats you use, it's about a third to 40% box office. You can also say it's 15% of screens. There's a couple different ways, but it's a large part of the independent landscape is a large part of the industry. And so our goal is to simply strengthen and grow those organizations. 2023 is going to be your fourth year, fifth year? Fifth year, I believe. This is my second year on the board, second year as president as well. So yeah, uh, it was started 2019, headed into the pandemic. So interesting timing. Five years in now, I mean, you had a pandemic right smack dab in the middle of that. What's your growth been like over 2022? I imagine uh, you're still raising awareness and then getting people on board and getting new members. Yes, definitely still raising awareness. This past week, we were at the Dine-In Summit in Dallas, Texas. And just, you know, the more we talk about the efforts we're making to help and grow independent cinemas, the more people are joining. So this past year, we ended the year with about 4,400 screens and about 154, I believe, companies. So with those statistics, we've definitely grown from, I think it was just under 3,000 screens about a year ago. And those are all paid members. So we are on our way and have a goal for 5,000 screens that we represent by the end of this coming year. For those extra 600 screens to get you there for people who are listening who maybe haven't heard you on the podcast before, what's the benefit for an independent cinema owner of joining the ICA? Yeah, I mean, really, we have three main initiatives. The first one is studio relations. So it's our goal 
to represent the independents in Hollywood. So we have a team lead, Brian Sieve from Odyssey Entertainment Group. He is leading the studio relations. Our goal is really to create win-win relationships with Hollywood, tackle some of the challenges as well at the same time. So we're going to be doing that quite a bit this year, and we've been working hard at that in 2022 as well. The second initiative that another reason to join and the value of joining the Independent Cinema Alliance is our ICA Marketplace. So essentially, it's a buying group, formerly the CBG, which I know you guys talked about on your podcast recently, which was started by NATO and since has been taken over by the Independent Cinema Alliance. And so the ICA Marketplace goal is to try to put together buying deals for our members so that they can essentially save money. Sometimes those deals also help increase revenue when it comes to a marketing strategy. And so our goal is to really ramp up that on the food and beverage side, try to do deals. And so as we come together, we can have you know better pricing and, and better P&Ls to our ultimate mission, which is to strengthen the independence. And then the third category is what I call studio marketing partnerships. So back to the studio relationship piece, we are looking to really take these 5,000 screens and make it really efficient for Hollywood studios to work with independent cinemas. It's difficult oftentimes for Hollywood studios or distributors to work one-on-one with a lot of, especially the small independents around the country, right? Those that have one screens or two screens or, or four screens or even just two locations, there's just not enough bandwidth at the studio level to communicate with them. And a lot of those businesses are small businesses that also need some marketing savvy. And so our goal is to create this efficiency model where we can work with any of the major studios, the Sonys, the Paramounts, the Warner Brothers, the Disney, and do some really smart marketing strategies to help increase the box office for those independents and by extension, of course, grow the box office for distribution. And then really the fourth one is education. It's a mandate of our nonprofit status. We do ICA Live every two weeks. We do webinars. We have one coming up on marketing on the 21st, I believe, that Tuesday. And yes, all those things together, we're working hard. It's a non-paid volunteer board. We spend quite a bit of time trying to move the needle for all things independent cinema. Now, I know the independents have gone through a lot of challenges. I think like the sector as a whole, to be fair. But I was wondering, coming out of a year like 2022, that we ended with $7.4 billion here in the domestic market, a recovery year, a transition year to better things to come, hopefully for all of us. What were your main takeaways for independent cinemas from 2022? Yeah, and it was another building year. I mean, what we're, the narrative we're trying to create, both on the independent side, but even in media in general, is that that's sort of the rearview mirror. Like, we believe that Q1, even now, uh, the mid sized films that have come out, the A Man Called Otto's, the 80 for Brady's, the Knock at the Cabin, all those movies, we needed those mid sized films. So, what was lacking at some level was we all remember Q3 of 2022, there just wasn't product. So we are a product-driven industry. Oh, yeah. Oh, and you compare Q1 this year to Q1 last year. I mean, it's night and day, right? We were all feeding off of whatever leftovers Spider-Man left us. And now we're in a situation where, sure, you've got Avatar legging out. But like you mentioned, 80 for Brady, Magic Mike, there's things out there to keep audiences coming back. Yeah, and I think what independents appreciate headed into this quarter is it is better than last year, first quarter. Even Q2 is going to be another really big Q2 if you look at the slate. All the Super Bowl ads, it was nice to see movie trailers quite a bit last night as we're recording this. 
but yeah, I think you know as a product driven industry, we're looking forward to Hollywood you know having those films and and having it be a theatrical as well. So we believe obviously there needs to be a theatrical window for it to be a healthy industry. And frankly, I think some of the major studios are also recalibrating their mindsets around what theatrical looks like, what the downstream benefit looks like. And that calibration, I believe, will really help independence because we'll have a theatrical window. We'll have that exclusivity and we'll sell popcorn at the same time. And then hopefully, I mean, we've seen a definite uptick in, I guess, non-traditional programming that's really been moving the needle so far this year. A lot of events, cinema, faith-based stuff, Bollywood films, which Dan Lowe's talked about at length about like the impact of the virtual print fee phasing out. Is that something that, uh, I mean, independents are, are finding too, or they're also benefiting from? Yeah. Alternative content, I think is definitely well received with independence. I mean, at the end of the day, we're in the inventory business. We have a lot of seats. Hopefully we've reclined most of our auditorium because that's what the consumer wants. But when you have that movie, whether it's from Fathom Events or whether it's from Trafalgar, there's a new Metallica, you know, I don't call it a film, but a, a, a unique screening of that concert. Like all of that stuff adds to the diversification of what we can have on screen. And I think the more we do that, the more it strengthens our model as well. So it's it's both, it's tent poles, it's the big movies, it's the big IP stuff that we sell a lot of tickets for. It's the mid-sized films, but then that alternative content is certainly certainly valuable for the bottom line. As we take a look back at 22 and what it meant for independent exhibition, I think the conversation we were probably having at this point last year, Rich, was probably around two headaches. The difficulty of staffing at that point in time and the difficulty in making sure that you could lock down consistent film releases and make them available to your theaters. Now, we just had the opening of Magic Mike, The Last Dance that ended up in number one at the box office it only went out to about 1,500 screens. I'm sure a lot of your members would have loved the opportunity to have gotten a title like that. How much of a factor is both A, staffing, and B, film availability for independents today? Yeah, the staffing question, we definitely had some headwinds there in early 2022. I think it's not easy to find people. I think it's easier than it's ever been. You know, From our experience, I run Warehouse Cinemas, which is an East Coast, Maryland-based company. We've had the most challenge hiring management. So I think, you know, figuring out a way to make it enticing for someone to make a career out of cinemas is something that's been talked about in the industry. I think that that's important, but it's a lot easier than it used to be. I mean, a lot of times staffing becomes the high school or young adult first job. And I, you know, I think it's a cool place to work. And uh, we, we tend to have a lot of those applications. It's more about finding the management and leadership talent but it is getting better. But yeah, the film release side of it, you know, we absolutely appreciated Warner Brothers doing the 1500, but it wasn't enough. We needed more availability, especially for independents. A lot of times from the independents perspective, you know, we're not in the big cities. And so that 1500 is a pretty small number to reach, you know, the smaller towns out there. Now, at the same time, you know, we also understand, I go back to the idea of efficiency. So we also have to keep thinking about, in addition to VPFs going away, and that's a reason to make it easier to get the film, there isn't a cost associated with that. I think what we're working hard at across all of all the departments that I mentioned earlier is the efficiency to make it easier for studios to work and give a film to a small independent and make that accounting easier, make the booking easier through the film bookers, make the marketing easier, all that stuff, all of those efficiencies will help reduce the overhead, essentially, of getting that film. But we do hope Warner Brothers for future films, and we believe that it's going to calibrate 
to be hopefully a larger a larger release and because that's what's going to keep our small towns and even mid-size exhibitors strong as well one of the things that I like to just mention, just to confirm that the base of the independent cinema lines is not just the small Main Street cinema, it's also the midsize. So we have a lot of pretty large companies that we consider independent. They're not publicly traded. So it runs the spectrum. So when you have a 1500 release in the case of Magic Mike, some of the, even the majors missed out on that and you know, lost out on the revenue. So it affects both the really small and even the you know, midsize exhibitors out there as well. You uh, mentioned looking forward to a packed Q2 this year. What are the films that you're looking forward to that you think might have maybe like the fraction of the success of everything over all at once and that hopefully will get you more screens on your ICA partners than Magic Mike's Last Dance did? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, we need the big films. Uh, there's big films like Super Mario Brothers coming out. There's films like Guy Ritchie's The Covenant's coming out from MGM. The big George Foreman film from Sony, April 28th. You know, a lot of these are smaller films, but uh, again, we need these. You have Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret from Lionsgate in April as well. Then you hit May and you have Guardians of the Galaxy and then you have Book Club from Focus and then Fast X from Universal, The Little Mermaid again from Disney the week after that. So it just, it like accelerates into the, to the second quarter. But yeah, you know, the best weekends that we have, I think as an industry, whether you're an independent or a big, is we have one that has diverse content. We have the big IP, the big temple, and then we fill them with, you know, rom-coms or whatever it is, or a drama, those small films. And that's when we have the big, huge box office in aggregate, as opposed to that one-off, you know, big hitter that's there for just two weeks by itself. If you don't want to see Fast X, you can have other options rather than sitting at home and paging through Netflix or seeing a movie in a theater that's already been out for eight weeks. Absolutely. And those options can be very diverse as well. They don't need to be other tent poles coming in. We've seen it with titles like Terrifier 2, for example. That's a niche movie. That's a movie that came in with basically no advertising campaign, but with a distributor that worked with exhibition to make sure it could get screens in a way that wasn't going to tie you guys up to play it when it wasn't going to perform. Skinamarink from IFC Films is another great example of distributors working with exhibition and being flexible and not forcing you to play a title, let's say a horror title, at 1 p.m. on a Sunday when you know it's just not going to work. Are you seeing a little bit more willingness from different distributors to meet you guys halfway, to sort of understand that the terms that might work for an avatar the way of water probably aren't going to work for everything else in the market? Yeah, I mean, it depends. It's studio per studio. I mean, I think, yeah, there's dynamics behind the scenes that I probably can't speak to, but I was just glancing at the list here that I'd approved from our circuits, Warehouse Cinemas. You know, we're leaning into Marlowe, for example, that's opening on Wednesday. That's an open road Briarcliff film. You know, Liam Neeson, you know, and then we're also leaning into the Fathom event movie, Blood and Honey, the Winnie the Pooh movie, which is getting a lot of buzz. But then we also have Ant Man. No pun intended. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was awful <laughs> that was all natural and then we have uh disney ant-man on friday so it you know i think one of the thing, things that we talk a lot about the independent cinema alliance is let's make sure that we you know work with our partners in distribution so when you ask about terms and flexibility and all those things like we also as an industry especially on the independent side need to lean into these smaller size films and i know daniel you've talked about this oftentimes i feel like we're like broken records on this but like we need to do our part at the exhibitor level to make sure that people know about marlo that people know about 
cocaine bear coming out from Universal. You know, they're not going to have massive budgets. Jesus Revolution coming out from Lionsgate, a faith-based film in February. I think beyond the idea of terms and getting better deals, I think if exhibitors lean in on the marketing side and distributors support them by getting the film and spending their own, you know, P&A dollars, their promotion and advertising, we have really good box office numbers. It's closing the loop on advertising, and I think that's a great way to put it. If the distribution costs are lower than they were thanks to digital cinema, sure, I think there might be natural concerns in terms of an advertising cost that the studio has to take over in order to excuse the 3,500 screen wide release. But like you're saying, Rich, exhibition can close that loop. If distribution is having those concerns, hey, if I go over 1,500, my marketing costs double. Yeah, that's a very fair point to make. But at the same time, this willingness that we're seeing from exhibition, whether they're independents or major circuits to say, hey, let us finish that marketing spend for you. You're doing all this work already. Let us take it home and let's work together closer. Like the marketing initiatives you have over at the ICA, I think is a perfect starting point to making sure that these movies that are already being released theatrically get to reach more screens in more towns across the country. Yeah, you know, I'm a marketing professional, so this is like the thing that I'm, I stand on the soapbox and talk about. I do believe that with great trailer placement, with good programming, and then you do some really smart digital media, you can leverage the data within your POS. It's really smart ways. You actually, from the distributor or the studio's perspective, you create lift for that movie. And we've proven that time and time again, both at our warehouse cinemas locations, but also by extension, some of the pilots programs that we're doing with distribution. We just finished up one with Sony on a man called Otto. Great results. We basically partnered on that film, I believe, and had great results. And so I think when it comes to changing the narrative, changing the way that it's always been in Hollywood, it's actually exhibitors leaning in and even maybe spending a little bit of money to get the word out. That is the lift in the box office proven by things that you're doing differently. And then also the ROI that comes from that dollar spent on the exhibitor side versus maybe a linear television spend or something like that. So not, you know, you need both. You need both the big spend that gets the word out on the movie as a whole, sort of the flyover marketing. But then you need that boots on the ground. We as independents can speak, I think, better than anyone else to our individual consumers to say, you know what? You went to these three movies in the past. We think you'll like Marlowe. We're going to recommend Marlowe. And that's what happens to us as we shop on Amazon. It's what happens when we do watch streaming. We're recommended film, right? There's no reason that exhibitors can't do that. There is a tremendous lift in ROI for both partners, the exhibitor side and the distributor side, if we do that better. And we were talking about these topics over at the Dine-In Summit uh, a couple of weeks back. Rich was there. A number of independent exhibitors were there. I think it was a great opportunity to hear some of these insights on what's working and what we need to work harder on as an industry. One of those topics that was mentioned at this event, Rich, is something that I know some independents have been doing rather effectively well, which is merchandising their own cinema. I look at my closet and I have t-shirts and hats from my local coffee shop, from my local concert venue. A lot of these merchandising items that I have aren't from big corporate chains. I don't have any Bank of America t-shirts, right? I don't have anything from something that I can see in every corner. I don't have any Burger King or McDonald's hats in my closet. But I do have my local coffee shops, you know, featured in my mugs. That's something that cinemas, I think, can do so well from this independent community standpoint basis. How 
common is this from your perspective? Because it's something that we're seeing more and more cinemas try out, and I really do think can be an interesting way to connect with viewers. Yeah, it, you know, it's branding, I think, Daniel. And I think, you know, before you get to doing merch, I think people have to feel a certain way about your brand. You have to feel a certain way about the coffee shop or feel a certain way about Nicole Kidman slash AMC or whatever it is that says, I want to be associated with this brand. And I think what that fundamentally reminds me of is just we as an industry need to stop thinking of ourselves as a movie theater, as a ticket taker, but more as an out-of-home entertainment option. And that really comes down to experience. So, you know, when we talk to independents, and hopefully this happened at the Dine-In Summit, is that people are talking about making it an evening out, making it an experience. The movie is the big main attraction of the part, but it's also how your cocktail you know, offerings were like and how your additional food items, your options there, maybe specialty popcorn, all those things. So if you create that experience and you can personalize that experience somehow, that's why people say, you know what, I think I'm going to go out to the movies because I feel like there's value there beyond just the ticket that I'm buying. There's a value of spending time in the community and being scared together and I'm with a significant other, whoever you're with. You know, that's really the opportunity to build the foundation for the brand. And then ultimately, the branding becomes merch, right? So merch is something that you want to wear and want to be associated with. And I think that's the power of independence. I think that they have an opportunity to really lean into that and become both personalized to their communities and get people to go to the movies more. And with that branding and that goodwill that you generate, I mean, people are still going to like you, even if the movie they saw any any given day is, is really awful. As we've seen, stuck in a situation where maybe things aren't so great from the film availability studio side of things, you still have your core, you still have your base. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, you know, it gives you a little bit of a pass if the movie isn't liked or isn't what they prefer. But yeah, I think branding builds on itself. And I think long term, a year, two, three, three years, and I think independents have an opportunity to build the brands within their communities to be a place where you can go spend affordable entertainment dollars versus other options out there. If the movie's bad and the cocktail's good, I'm going to have to order, you know, an extra one to get through the movie. So That's right. It's more of an issue if it's the other way around, Rebecca. If the movie's good and the cocktails are bad, that's when you know it's the movie theater's fault. That's when we have to start worrying about things. Well, Rich, before we go, are there any other points you want to bring up for our uh, listeners here this week on the podcast? Yeah, just that, you know, the Independent Cinema Alliance, again, our goal is to strengthen and grow independent cinemas, and it's our focus there. Uh, Organizations like NATO, you know, serve everyone. They serve the AMCs, the Regals, the Cinemarks, and then they serve independents as well. And we're in constant communication with them to make sure that we are aligned in that and sort of complement each other. But really, I mean, from the Independent Cinema Alliance perspective, we launched our new website, cinemaalliance.org. You can find out more there. But there's just a tremendous, I believe, momentum around independents coming together under our umbrella for the things that we can impact. And so we're just really excited to be you know, headed towards 5,000 paid screens. It puts us... If we do a good job on the efficiency side and we act like a large circuit, you know, we're actually the number three circuit in the country if you look at it that way. So it's we have a lot of work to do on that. But our membership, there's just a lot of, again, mid-size exhibitors. You have the Alamo Draft House, you have the Studio Movie Girl, you have Malco, Premiere, you have Classic Cinemas. A lot of these have 20, 30, 40 locations each. And then you also have in this independent bucket, the really small guys. And I think together we're extremely valuable in a, a force in the industry. And so if we do a better job marketing and partnering with distribution, I think we'll be fine. 
And so for anyone out there that's, that's considering joining, it's cinemaalliance.org. And there's a place there where you can join. It's extremely affordable. It's based on your screen count with a maximum. And um, we'd love to have you if you're listening and would like to find out more. Well, Rich, thank you so much for joining us once again here on the Box Office Podcast. That's Rich Daughtridge, the president of the Independent Cinema Alliance and also the CEO of Warehouse Cinemas. Cool. Thank you for having me. And that does it for this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. This week's episode was brought to you by Jackrow, whose ticketing point of sale system, or TAPOS, has customers singing its praises. Mark Williams of Scott Cinemas says, We have worked with Tapos for over 25 years using its ticketing and concessions point of sale, as well as online booking and card payment facilities. They've helped us navigate an ever-changing landscape and helped us as an independent cinema operator to keep our ticketing modern. We have worked closely with the development and support teams to customize the system to meet our needs, with particular focus in recent years on working towards a cloud-based head office. For more information, visit www.jacro.com. That's jackro.com. New episodes of the Box Office Podcast come again every Thursday. Thank you again for your support, and we will talk to you again next week.